One of the most troubling movies that I've ever watched was called The Apostle. It starred Robert Duvall as a Pentecostal preacher who defied stereotypes. He was not a fraud like Elmer Gantry using religion to make a buck, nor was he a person whose faith in Jesus transformed him so much that he didn't struggle with sin anymore. No, no, he was just, just this, this messy mix of spirit and flesh who in one moment could display inspiring devotion to God and then turn around and act in the most unchristian way anyone could imagine. The line on the movie poster said it all. The hardest soul to save was his own. And all I could think as I was watching this movie was how could such contradictory passions coexist in one person? But of course, that was the truth that this movie told, that, that he really was not all that different than we are, than I am. And it may be true that we're not as messy as he is, that we don't swing uh, to such dramatic extremes, but all of us who have been inhabited by the Spirit of God know that his influence on us does not remove that inner battle we fight between our holiest desires and the darkest impulses of our sinful nature. In fact, if anything, the battle is more intense for us now that we're followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5 that within us, the spirit and the flesh are always in conflict with each other so that nothing we do satisfies every part of us. And if we're honest, uh, we'll admit that over time, that never-ending inner war wears us down. And the temptation under that kind of chronic stress is to compromise. It's to settle for living a double life or worse, to just let our flesh have its way with us. After all, we know that God's going to forgive us, right? We know we're going to heaven. We know that heaven is going to be better than we could imagine whether we live righteously or unrighteously. So we ask ourselves, how serious is sin, really? Yes, it had real consequences before we were Christians, but now, as Christians, is it really that big a deal? Well, that's a question that James answers very clearly in this letter. And as is his style, he spreads the truth out over multiple chapters. But we're going to fit these puzzle pieces together by asking James four specific questions about sin. The first one is, where does this relentless temptation to sin come from? And what James wants us to know right out of the gate is that it doesn't come from God. Look at what he says in chapter 1, uh, verse 13. Chapter 1, um, verse 13. He said, when tempted... Um, no one should say, God is tempting me. Or as the message puts it, God is trying to trip me up. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now to say that God cannot be tempted by evil does not mean that the devil has never tried to trip him up. It just means that he's never succeeded. Yes, Jesus was tempted 
That's the word the Bible used. He was tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. That's what James is saying, that, that God, neither God the Son nor God the Father, has ever given in to temptation, nor does he tempt anyone. And you may ask, well, so why then did Jesus teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation? Well, it wasn't because there's some danger that God might do that. No, no, the world is a minefield of temptations. And Jesus, having faced those temptations more fiercely than we can imagine, was saying to those of us who are truly vulnerable to failure, beg God to steer you clear of temptation. Ask him to deliver you from evil. But if you don't follow his lead, and as a result find yourself in a compromising position, don't blame him. He didn't put you there. He can help you out of it, but he didn't get you into it. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, James says in verse 16. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He is consistently and utterly holy, and he only gives us good gifts. He would never tempt us to sin because he knows that only bad things can happen when we go there. Okay, so if God's not to blame for temptation, who is? Well, we know that the devil is a tempter. Matthew 4 calls him the tempter. 1 Peter 5 says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's why chapter 4, verse 7 of this book tells us to resist the devil. Because he's not just a figment of our imagination. He's not a name that we've made up to describe how hard it is to do what is right. The devil is very real. He is unspeakably evil. He, he is unimaginably powerful. And he is de as determined to take us out as he was to take Jesus out. And three different times, Jesus called the devil the prince of this world. 1 John 5 says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. It's hard for us to process that because we live in this world and there's a lot about this world that we really enjoy. There's a lot that's good in this world. But when the Bible says that the world is evil, it's saying that this world system, this society we live in, this culture that we are a part of, has been so infected by evil. Its whole sense of right and wrong is upside down. It celebrates sin. It persecutes righteousness. It dangles destructive enticements in front of us 24-7. And James says down in verse 27 that the religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless includes keeping ourselves from being polluted by this world. And he says in chapter 4, verse 4, that anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's how corrupt it is. And yet, despite the fact that the devil and the world he controls exert constant pressure on us to sin against God, ultimately what causes our downfall 
is not outside of us. It is inside us. Look again at verse 13 of James 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by what? The devil? The world? No, they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, the line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart. Even in the best of all hearts, there remains a small corner of evil. The New Testament calls that corner of evil our flesh. It's a residue of rebellion, a resilient, sinful nature that remains in us even after the Spirit of God makes our heart His home. Wouldn't it be great if He just obliterated that mutinous part of us? Well, the day is coming when He will do that. The Apostle Paul called it the redemption of our bodies. It's the day that's coming. Jesus will come back, and this body, this body that has been infected by sin, will be glorified. It'll be totally cleansed, completely purified from, from all of its corruption. But until that day, sinful desires will continue to wage war against our soul. Those desires will, to use James' language, entice us like bait on a hook. Now, when that happens, we're never powerless. We were before we became Christians, but now that strong pull toward sin is countered by an even stronger pull toward righteousness. And God is faithful, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. But ultimately, it's our choice. And it's a hard choice. It's a real battle. And the question that we can't help but ask when we are worn down by that battle is, why not just give in? I mean, honestly, how dangerous is capitulation? Honestly, it's deadly. Look at the progression in verse 15. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Death? Yes, death. I want you to hold your place here in James 1, and look with me at Proverbs 7. To get to Proverbs 7, you just kind of open your Bible to the halfway point. It's right about there. The book of Psalms is right before that, so Proverbs is next after that. And we're looking at chapter 7 because there it gives us um, an illustration, a very vivid illustration of what this downward spiral uh, looks like. Proverbs 7, starting in verse 6. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, 
dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face she said, Today I fulfilled my vows and I have food for my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Hmm. Desire, sin, death. We may say, well, that's pretty melodramatic. Death is just a metaphor, right? Uh, No. No, the only question is, what kind of death will you die if you let sin go unchecked? When uh, Paul says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, what kind of death was he talking about? He was talking about eternal death, the opposite of eternal life. He was talking about hell. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. There's another word for death, another word for hell. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Jesus said, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Another word for eternal death. It's one of these things that James has been trying to tell us in all kinds of different ways. He's trying to tell us, listen, a day of judgment is coming. You think you're going to live here like this forever? Nope. Dot. Which will end with a day of judgment followed by a line, the quality of life on that line being determined by what happens on that day of judgment. Every single one of us will stand before God alone. And we will be either rewarded or punished based on the choices that we have made. So if sin wins... Now, we lose then. We die forever. As Christians, we say, wait, 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 no. Jesus died for my sins. I'm going to heaven. It's guaranteed. Well, that's true. Thank God. But the fact that you are going to heaven does not mean that you can sin with impunity. No, the teaching of the New Testament certainly is not that faith is a loophole 
Some of us get that wrong. Oh, I've done what I have to do in order to make it to heaven. I've, I, I've checked that box. I've prayed that prayer. So I'm safe. It's not what the Bible teaches. What it teaches is that faith, yes, results in our forgiveness, but it also changes us at a nitty-gritty level. As those who have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, we begin to live righteously. Certainly not perfectly, but when you look at the video of our life, since we put our faith in Jesus, what you will see is predominantly righteous. And if the scales ever start tipping in the opposite direction, such that we are starting to be characterized by sin instead of righteousness, God will discipline us. In some way, you will feel his thumb pressing down upon you. And the further that you drift away from righteousness, the heavier that that press will be. And God is so utterly committed to our ultimate salvation that if necessary, he will actually cut off our life before he will let us cross the line from righteousness to unrighteousness. That's how much he loves us. That's how severe his grace can be. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 11. He says that God will discipline us to the point of death so that we will not be condemned with the world. So when James says that sin gives birth to death, he's not exaggerating. It may be physical death or it may be eternal death, but it's no metaphor. Sin will kill you. I know that our image of God is so photoshopped that we doubt that. We think that he's really a softy. He would never be that severe. But the image of God that James gives us over in chapter 4, verse 4, is very different. Look at how he begins it. Chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. Stop there. What's adultery? It's unfaithfulness to your spouse. And who is our spouse, spiritually speaking? God is. In the book of Jeremiah, God says to his chosen people, the people of Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me. And in the very same way, we as the bride of Christ are capable of cheating on God. James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. How do you think God feels about it when we are unfaithful to him? Well, how would you feel if your spouse cheated on you? The biblical word for the intensity with which you expect faithfulness from your spouse is jealousy. And God is a jealous husband. James says in verse 5, or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously 
longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. He, he, has, he has given us this, this spirit and he, and he wants this spirit to be completely his. And when we give ourselves away to someone else, though we belong to him, Zechariah 8 says that he burns with jealousy. Uh, he's, he's a consuming fire of jealousy, Deuteronomy 4 says. He does not say, well, I know how strong temptation can be. Do your best. If you fail, I'll understand. No. He demands faithfulness from us. And our adultery enrages him. When I was in seminary, one of our chapel speakers said, never dare to take God's grace for granted or you will run smack into his holiness. And it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10 says. So if you're wandering down the path toward the home of the harlot, now is the time to come to your senses and take the way out that God has promised to provide. But what if it's too late? What if desire has already given birth to sin? How do you pacify God's anger? And how do you release sin's grip on you? What is the way of escape? Well, if you don't take God's grace for granted, but you cry out for it as if your life depended on it, it's there for you. James says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. What a surprising thing for him to say right after warning us about the jealousy of God. Thank God that because of the death Jesus died, there is enough grace to cover all of our sin, no matter how far we have wandered or how low we have sunk. But accessing it is not a casual transaction. It requires gut-wrenching sorrow and genuine repentance. Middle of verse 6, that is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Uh, who may stand in God's holy place, Psalm 24 asks. And then it answers it with this. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Both our actions and our thoughts must be scrubbed clean. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, Jesus said. So verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. That's what real repentance looks like. We don't say, well, thank God for the blood of Jesus and move on. No, no, we collapse before the spouse whose heart we have broken and whose trust we have violated and whose anger we have aroused. 
and we weep with regret. Our own heart breaks over the way we have trampled the Son of God underfoot and treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified us and insulted the spirit of grace. And we make a a genuine, permanent break with that sin. We fully intend to never do it again. And then we say, but Lord, unless you empower me, unless you protect me, unless you lead me away from temptation, I know I will fail again. I desperately need you. Away from me, Satan. Have mercy on me, Father. It's when we humble ourselves with that kind of intensity that he lifts us up. And if we don't take confession and repentance that seriously, we will not win the battle. The question is not if we will mourn over our sin, just when. Jesus said that when he returns, all the peoples of the earth will mourn. Why? Because of the judgment that awaits them. But if we mourn for our sin now, we will have no reason to mourn then. Some of you are thinking, man, what a downer of a message. I agree. James would would never win a, a preacher's popularity contest. But his goal is not to make us feel better. His goal is to open our eyes to reality. And the reality is that sin is way too dangerous to trifle with. As Proverbs 12 says it, righteousness is the road to life. Wickedness is the road to death. And if it's not challenging enough that God wants uncompromising purity from us, James adds one more hard truth. He wants it from the whole church, not just us as individuals. Collectively, we're the bride of Christ. And it pleases God when we love him and we love one another enough to hold each other accountable to holiness. To the question, am I my brother's keeper? James says, yes, you are. Look at the very last paragraph of this letter, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, now he's not talking about wandering away from good theology, but wandering away from right living. We've all had Christian friends who have done that. They've done exactly what James said will lead to their death. What should we do about that? We should bring that person back, he says. One paraphrase says, don't write them off. Go after them. Like the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one sheep that has wandered off, bring that person back. Restore them gently, Paul says in Galatians 6. And carefully, watching yourself so that you are not also tempted. Go and point out their fault just between the two of you, Jesus said. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. You do whatever it takes 
to bring that person back into an obedient relationship with God. Why? Because, verse 20, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. There's no more costly expression of love for a Christian friend than to pursue them when they drift away from God. They may accuse you of being unloving, but what is truly unloving is to watch them descend toward death and to do nothing. If lifeguards only saved cooperative swimmers, many more would drown. Remember, it's not just about you, it's about us. God is not willing to lose even one of us. That is why we must go after one another when we wander from the truth. Isn't it sobering to realize just how serious sin is? And the fact that we're imprisoned in unredeemed flesh and a devil-controlled world makes what Jesus did for us on the cross all the more invaluable, doesn't it? And um, it makes the sacrament of communion anything but routine. We've quoted um, the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 so many times that they have become almost too familiar. First he quotes the words Jesus spoke when he gave his disciples bread to eat and wine to drink at the Last Supper. But then he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Considering what both Paul and James had to say about sin and how it leads to death, I think it's worth pausing to examine ourselves before we eat and drink together. May no one here eat and drink judgment on themselves by harboring sin rather than openly confessing it and wholeheartedly turning from it. I'm speaking now both to those who are already Christians and to those who are not yet Christians. Um, If you've never before turned from your sin and trusted Jesus to save you from death on the basis of his substitutionary death on the cross, you can do that right now. This is an amazing thing, but when you do that from the heart, you actually get a fresh start with God. No matter how far you've wandered, death is off the table. Eternal life is given as a gift instead. 